Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the care of patients with brain tumors with Dr. Nicholas Blondin. Dr. Blondin is an assistant professor of clinical neurology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So maybe we can start by you telling us a little bit more about what it is you do and 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 a bit more about yourself. Well, sure. I'm a neurologist by training. And uh, following my neurology residency, I did some additional training in oncology and uh so I finished with board certification in neurology and neuro-oncology. And so I approach patient care as a neurologist, um, thinking about um, neurological function of my patients and how their, how their body works. Um, but now in practice, uh, really full-time see patients affected by brain tumors and uh, cancer-causing neurological um, symptoms. So let's talk a little bit about both of those areas. So First, in terms of brain cancers, can you give us a little bit more of the lay of the land? Who gets brain cancer? What are the different types? How, how do we kind of approach thinking about brain cancers? Sure. Well, in um, on one sense, uh, fortunately, brain tumors and brain cancer is a rare condition. Um, it's felt to uh, have kind of a incidence or diagnosis rate of approximately 300 people per 1 million people per year. Um, there are two subtypes of brain tumors, those being considered benign brain tumors or non-cancerous and those being cancerous, uh, meningiomas and glioma tumors are the most common tumors in, uh, in patients that constitutes approximately two thirds of all, all the brain tumors and the frequency of these tumor types, um, and, uh, their grade varies by their age group. So brain tumors can actually affect, um, a person at any age from, infants and young children, all the way through uh, very, very elderly patients. And um, brain tumors are, uh, are amongst children, a, a relatively common uh, childhood cancer uh, following leukemia. In adults, uh, brain metastasis, which is the spread of other cancers to the brain, is more common than primary brain tumors. Um, glioblastoma is the most common malignant primary brain tumor in adults. And uh, becomes more common with older age, uh, particularly for folks in their 60s or 70s. Wow, lots to unpack there. So let, let's start uh, at the beginning. When you talked about brain tumors kind of affecting everyone throughout the age spectrum, one of the things that I think many of our listeners might be really intrigued about is the fact that brain tumors are so common in young infants and children. Tell us a little bit more about um, how that presents, who might be at greatest risk. And, you know, certainly when parents hear that statistic that you mentioned, um, they may be curious about what to look for in terms of brain cancers in their children. Can you shed some light on that? Sure. Well, I guess I would like to uh, correct in one, one sense. Um, they're a common cancer, but fortunately, cancers are extremely rare in children. So they are, um, you know, overall for children, like very rare conditions. Typically, they would be discovered by a patient or a, like a child having um, difficulty with walking, um, like unexplained falls or 
headaches and co- like kind of cognitive impairments or, or sudden changes um, leading you know to initially uh, like evaluation and diagnosis via imaging, um, you know, finding a brain tumor. And so, so, you know, if you have a child who might be a little bit delayed, might be falling, might be complaining of headaches, something to go and talk to your pediatrician about. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's for sure. I mean, parents, um, you know, know their, know their kids the best. And if they see a a change, uh, and it's anything of concern definitely is most appropriate to uh, check in with the pediatrician um, and they'll have a good sense to help figure out what's going on. And so how is that diagnosis made? You go in, you see the pediatrician, the pediatrician says, yeah, you know, this is kind of odd for your child. I agree. There might be something going on. What's the next step? Is the next step imaging? And after that, um, what happens? Is, Is there a biopsy involved? Well, I think that um, the pediatrician would, um, you know, hear hear the the history and the situation, and then examine the child. And if they see any concerning um, neurological signs like uh, difficulty with with walking or other just neurological anomalies on the uh, on the test, they they may uh, want to refer the patient to a pediatric neurologist, or they they may want to um, just proceed with doing an imaging test. Uh, in children and even really in adults, doing MRIs um, may be preferable to doing CAT scans uh, as MRI is a technology based on magnets, whereas CAT scans uh, is a low dose of radiation. And you want to try to limit radiation in, in, uh, in children if at all possible. Um, but yeah, then if, if um, some abnormality is found on the imaging, then the uh, patient would be probably referred to a neurosurgeon for uh, their expertise and uh, figuring out what could be the the next steps going forward, whether just further monitoring with scans or whether doing like a biopsy or a neurosurgical procedure is indicated. How would would the neurosurgeon determine that? Um, If you see a lesion on the MRI, how would they determine whether that's something that they can just watch and follow with, uh, you know, serial scans or whether that's something that needs to be biopsied or potentially removed? Well, with um, imaging, there can be appearances of, of um, abnormalities that have a look of uh, like some a malignancy or, or a concerning lesion and then other things that look like non-concerning lesions. And that really is just expertise with time and medical training to um, like understand what we're really looking at on the scans and uh, like attending physicians say they would they would know like this looks like something we need to deal with uh, like and, and really diagnose or on the other hand no this looks like just a benign kind of a lesion and it would really be safer just to monitor this with scans yeah and beyond yeah pediatrics that uh, this is a really a just a key component of my practice as well I see patients all the time with with abnormal scans and they do fall into those two categories and I love seeing the patients where I know the the scan actually is like really of a benign nature, um, you know, not consistent with with cancer or malignancy, and I, that's great news to give a person. Yeah. So, so really, based on on the imaging characteristics of of the lesion in mind, and and then you said that you know in adulthood, brain cancers can also occur. Um, most commonly in patients who are in their 60s or 70s. So 
Um, how might those symptoms present? How do patients present with brain tumors when they're older? A uh, warning sign for a brain tumor in adults is a first-time seizure in a person without a previous history of seizures or epilepsy. Um, that's a common way that uh, a person can be uh, found to have a brain tumor. Uh, other relatively common uh, ways of diagnosing it is someone with um, like a rapid onset over weeks of, of confusion or most seeming like dementia and cognitive impairments. Uh, or if someone develops a, a visual loss, um, a loss of part of their field of vision. You know, I've seen some folks that end up having uh, car accidents where, where they don't realize they've lost some, some vision uh, or eye doctors can uh, you know detect a patient has a partial visual field loss and re refer the patient to a uh, a neurologist with a scan then showing a brain tumor. Hmm. And then uh, same kind of uh, algorithm in terms of getting scans and determining based on the imaging characteristics, whether this looks benign or malignant. Exactly. We can tell based on scan, um, the scan findings uh, have a good differential for what that lesion could be um, and whether it uh, you know needs to have a biopsy or, or neurosurgical inter intervention or not. And so, you know, you mentioned that uh, tumors of the brain are, are really classified into benign and malignant. So um, what proportion of brain cancers are benign and what proportion are malignant? And does that vary between children and adults? Uh, it does vary, uh, vary between children. Uh, between children and adults in terms of what tumors uh, tumors can occur in children. A tumor called a medulloblastoma is, is the common malignant tumor, whereas those are rare in adults. And in adults, glioblastoma is the most common malignant tumor, and those are rare in children. Meningiomas, which are a benign type of tumor, are extremely rare in children, um, but they are the most common brain tumor in adults. And they're considered benign in that they grow relatively slowly. They actually grow on the lining of the brain called the dura and uh, cause issues by causing compression on the brain as they grow. So even though they typically don't invade the brain as an organ directly and uh, grow slower, they still can cause significant neurological problems, including seizures and epilepsy. And so terming them benign may not really be uh, you know, really look at the whole scope of, of how that's impacting a person. Yeah, benign, but still problematic. So what proportion of brain tumors in children are benign versus what proportion are malignant? Roughly. I think that the, uh, again, the, the tumors are rare, but it may actually be kind of like a, like a um, kind of an even split as some tumors are called pilocytic astrocytomas. They can be cured with surgery and uh, considered uh, benign. That's another relatively common um, tumor of children that we really don't see very often in, in adults. And for adults, are benign tumors more common than malignant? They are. Ten, yeah, there, there is a, like an increase in the uh, benign tumors compared to, compared to uh, the malignant. Again, with, with uh, meningiomas being the most common. Uh, pituitary tumors are another uh, form of uh, a benign brain tumor uh, that's relatively common and uh, may be able to be managed with uh, hormonal medication. 
And so in the malignant, you classified the malignants further into brain tumors that start in the brain. And we've talked a little bit about some of those and secondary malignancies or cancers that start somewhere else and travel to the brain. So when we think about malignant uh, brain tumors, um, which are more common, the kind that start in the brain or the kind that travel there from somewhere else? Well, the uh, the secondary tumors are actually much more common, um, actually felt up to be 10 times more common than primary brain tumors. Uh, I think really just reflecting that other cancers like lung cancer uh, and breast cancer in particular are, are just much more common in adults than gliomas and other primary brain tumors. If you were diagnosed with um, another kind of cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, um, can all of these travel to the brain or does the brain have a certain predilection for some cancers versus others? It turns out that there, there is this predilection for some cancers versus others. And some rare cancers have a relatively high rate of brain involvement, um, such as melanoma. And then other cancers have a very low rate of brain involvement, like uh, prostate cancer. Um, lung cancer and breast cancer may spread to the brain. It's estimated to be up, up to a quarter of people um, affected by those, those cancers ultimately. And treatments have improved for breast and lung cancer over the last um, decade. And pa as patients live longer, there may be a higher rate of brain metastasis um, that, that wasn't seen uh, in, in the past. So we're going to have to take a short break for a medical minute, but please stay tuned to learn more about brain tumors and their treatment when we come back after the break with my guest, Dr. Nicholas Blondin. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where the bladder cancer team is at the forefront of bladder cancer treatment and research. Learn more at YaleCancerCenter.org. There are over 16.9 million cancer survivors in the U.S. and over 240,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. The return to normal activities and relationships may be difficult, and cancer survivors may face other long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, to keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. The Smilo Cancer Hospital Survivorship Clinic focuses on providing guidance and direction to empower survivors to take steps to maximize their health, quality of life, and longevity. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Nicholas Blondin. We're talking about the management of patients with brain tumors in honor of Brain Cancer Awareness Month. Now, right before the break, Dr. Blondin was telling us that brain tumors can affect everyone throughout the age spectrum from infants and young children all the way up to more elderly patients, that brain tumors can be benign or malignant. And of those that are malignant, they can either start in the brain or they can travel there from somewhere else. 
and that is by far the most common. Are brain scans routinely done in patients who have been diagnosed with, say, breast cancer or lung cancer or melanoma or prostate cancer? Um, Or is that something that is only done if they have symptoms? Well, it really depends, again, on the type of cancer that that a person um, has been diagnosed with. And there are um, guidelines for various cancers in regards to doing screening MRIs uh, or or not needing to do them. With um, some lung cancers, uh, particularly more advanced lung cancers that that may uh, involve lymph nodes in the chest, doing an MRI of the brain um, following diagnosis is um, generally appropriate and recommended. Um, And with other cancers like melanoma, when um, when they're diagnosed, um, brain scan also is part of the. Uh, it's called the staging evaluation and doing a like a evaluation f- to find where could this uh, cancer have gone. But in other cancers like breast cancer and colon cancer, for example, um, it's not done routinely. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. Um, you know, I believe the majority of breast cancers are. Um, localized in one breast, they can be uh, fortunately cured with surgery or does with surgery f- uh, followed by radiation or uh, other therapies. And in the, um, these patients, the chance of a brain metastasis is felt to be sufficiently low that doing a screening brain MRI is um, not part of the um, these kind of guidelines for, for evaluation at the time of diagnosis. And so for patients who you know, have a cancer and either due to symptoms or due to routine screening, have an MRI of the brain and a lesion lights up, presumably um, that would be suspicious for a metastasis. So what's the next step? Do these patients routinely get a biopsy of their brain to determine whether that is in fact a metastasis or are they treated um, on spec? Or how does that work? Yep. So I work um, closely with my medical oncology colleagues. And if a patient that they're treating for, um, let's say, breast cancer develops um, increasing headaches, had never had headaches before, and dizziness um, or other neurological symptoms, um, their medical oncologist can order an MRI at that time to evaluate for an issue. And then if um, lesions are found, they would um, refer the patient to me for a consultation. I can review the situation in the scan. And typically for brain metastasis, we actually can avoid a biopsy. Um, Imaging can be consistent with that diagnosis and patients can be treated um, with some radiation therapy uh, strategies and that can control the metastasis. um, And the patient can kind of just continue on uh, with their treatment at that point. Uh, Those radiation therapies are um, performed by radiation oncologists or um, in in some cases, neurosurgeons who used advanced radiation technologies uh, like the gamma knife machine. And so, so certainly radiation uh, is one modality to treat brain metastases. Oftentimes when we think about metastases in general for cancers, we think about more systemic kind of therapies like chemotherapy or immunotherapy or even other targeted therapies. So for example, in breast cancer, we might think about endocrine therapy. But 
In terms of managing brain metastases, sometimes these systemic therapies are not as effective because of the blood-brain barrier. Can you talk a little bit more about that and potentially strategies and newer agents that might be able to cross that blood-brain barrier better? Right. The blood-brain barrier is a mechanism that developed to prevent toxic molecules from crossing uh, from the bloodstream into the brain. And so it's good for, for evolution and, and brain health, but it makes it challenging to treat brain metastasis. Fortunately, over the last decade, there's really been tremendous progress in the development of new drugs to treat systemic cancers. And some of these drugs can cross the blood-brain barrier, uh, both molecular drugs, uh, particularly for some subtypes of lung cancer. And immunotherapy also can be highly effective uh, for some patients uh, affected by brain metastasis uh, with cancer types like lung cancer and melanoma. So being in, uh, in the field and in practice, it's really been exciting for me to see these developments. And now we have some medical options to treat patients with brain metastasis, uh, you know, whereas about 10 years ago, the options really were just radiation uh, or uh, surgery. And so when a patient is diagnosed with brain metastases, um, what's their prognosis? Because I can imagine that many patients may be thinking to themselves, you know, is it worth it to have more treatment, to have potentially chemotherapy or immunotherapy and radiation therapy uh, if the prognosis is going to be dismal? Can you talk a little bit about what the implications of a brain metastases are in terms of prognosis? And has that changed in recent years? Well, I believe it has definitely changed and it's improved pretty significantly for some patients. Really, it depends on the cancer type and then really cancer subtype. Is there potentially effective therapy for this cancer subtype? And what's the, the amount of brain metastasis or the burden of brain metastasis? Is there only one lesion or a few lesions or is there a numerous lesions? And so... If a patient has a type of lung cancer that can be responsive to certain drugs, uh, what's called osimertinib for a subtype of, of lung cancer, this has activity against brain metastasis. And patients may be able to actually continue living for years with, uh, you know, with, this, with this treatment for them. Whereas in the past, when these uh, drugs hadn't been developed yet, the outlook was considerably worse uh, for these patients. Yeah. And are there exciting clinical trials ongoing now that are looking at novel treatments for brain metastases? What's on the horizon? It has been exciting to see a lot of uh, new drugs coming into development and a renewed, or really just a new focus on brain metastasis and CNS disease by investigators and um, companies trying to develop these novel treatments. I think in the past, brain tumors were felt to be uh, difficult to treat and in a, a difficult area to research. There, there wasn't as, as much interest in treating, but that's really changed over the last several years. And there's a number of, of drugs in development for um, all various types of cancers, including primary brain tumors and gliomas, looking at ways to try to fight, fight these cancers and improve the survival time and quality of life for the patients. 
You know, speaking of quality of life, that's another question that I had. Whether you have a primary brain tumor or a secondary brain tumor, one can imagine that the uh, toxicity of the regimens that you're given, whether it's radiation therapy or chemotherapy, can have side effects. Whether it's, you know, swelling in the brain that can cause uh, other issues, whether it's fatigue, other things. Can you talk a little bit about the side effects of treatment and some of the ways that you and a multidisciplinary team kind of help patients through uh, treatment of brain cancers? For treatment of my patients, I'm always considering a person's quality of life and the impacts that treatments would have on them. And it sometimes can be a balancing act over um, what may be an effective treatment to lengthen a person's life. But on the flip side, what kind of adverse side effects could this cause? And this is really leads to treatment needing to be individualized for, for every single patient. And particularly with primary brain tumors, uh, really look at an individual patient um, and try to discuss with them what I think would be really the op- optimal treatment um, to achieve to achieve what their outcomes are. And, and folks even can have dif- different perspectives on um, you know their what they perceive to be their quality of life and versus survival survival time. And uh, again, it's an individual conversation. And with the team, I work closely with a. a colleagues in, in different disciplines and, and uh, everyone is instrumental in the optimal management of brain tumor patients. Uh, the, my other specialists include neurosurgeons, radiation oncologists, pathologists, and radiologists. And uh, we have uh, frequent meetings to uh, review patient cases and come up with an optimal treatment uh, approach for a patient based on all of our collective expertise. You know, one of the things uh, that comes up in this show routinely time after time is this concept that you mentioned of really personalizing care to an individual patient. And a lot of that seems to be really driven by this explosion in genomics and understanding genetic mutations that can cause various cancers. When we think about primary brain cancers and even secondary brain cancers, Tell us a little bit about how genomics or uh, mutational analyses of these tumors helps to individualize therapy. Is that something that's commonly done? It is commonly done. Um, we consider that essentially standard of care now. And there are different subtypes of glioblastoma. Uh, one main differentiation being the status of an en- enzyme called the N- MGMT enzyme. And now we've been able to develop these various subgroups of patients and are trying to develop new treatment strategies. Unfortunately, um, this is all still in development. There really has been no uh, breakthrough yet for various subtypes of primary brain tumors. Uh, But with other cancers like lung cancer um, in particular, this strategy uh, was look, you know, was evolved, uh, evolved several years ago, and now various subtypes of, of lung cancers, uh, such as the ALK mutated or ALK mutated lung cancer, has its own targeted therapies. These can cross the blood-brain barrier and and be highly effective at controlling ALK mutated lung cancer that affects the brain. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll get there with glioblastoma treatment over the next 10 years because I've seen these breakthroughs occur in in other cancer types. And that's been great to see. 
You know, the other question um, that a lot of patients could ask is, you know, was there anything that I did that could cause this brain tumor or anything that I could do to prevent brain tumors? You know, we all hear about doing crossword puzzles and keeping your brain active to try to stay off dementia. But is there anything that we can do to kind of help mitigate against uh, brain tumors or the toxicity of brain tumor treatment? I was just having a conversation with a patient of mine yesterday about this and was wondering, like, how, how did I get this? And the truth is that for the vast, vast majority of people, their brain tumors are just sporadic. Dr. Nicholas Blondin is an assistant professor of clinical neurology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.